If you're, if you're new with us today, also, um, there's, there's communication cards in the Bibles, and if you like, you can fill those out, hand off contact information. Also, these are great ways to share a prayer request or any kind of a comment. We go through these at staff meeting tomorrow, and uh, so I, I just welcome any kind of uh, communication or interaction in that regard. <clears throat> Friends, this, this, this ritual that we participate in together um, almost every week for most of us, it, it can be this incredibly powerful experience. Uh, we, can, we can choose to engage in this in a way that will enable uh, this time together to, to actually transform us. It can become an empty ritual. It can become a habit that doesn't make much of a difference. It, it also can become um, something that's more akin to regular training, regular coaching, um, uh, the, the kind of thing that, that is effective because it takes the shape of such consistency and intentionality if, in fact, we engage in it, right? So many of us are, uh, are, um, or have been a part of a worship community for most of our lives, and this is not new. It doesn't feel weird. It's just sort of what we do. So it's especially to those of us, because I've been involved in this for a long time by this point in my life as well, that I speak when I say, let's engage here. Let's, let's open our hearts to the word of God. Let's uh, be honest with where we are in, in our lives right now. I, I'm not asking you to leave anything out. I'm asking you instead to bring all of it in and see what does the word say to my life this morning? How can integrating the story of God with my, with my story um, make a difference, affect things, change and affect the way I'm thinking, the way I'm speaking, the way I'm living, all right? So let's, uh, I, I'm, just, I'm convinced of the meaningful and effective nature of what we're doing. Um, as we cooperate together, and this is uh, not a passive and participatory kind of, or a, a spectator kind of a thing, but a participatory experience. So may this teaching be engaging, um, and may it be helpful. All right. Usually, um, I appreciate funerals more than weddings. It's kind of a weird thing, potentially, with me. Uh, clearly, funerals are often very sad, uh, but I find them to be more clarifying and more compelling, and often more honest than uh, some of the weddings that, that I get to be a part of, which are also wonderful and good, right? Occasionally, I'll do a funeral for somebody uh, for whom there isn't much to say, or about whom there's not much to say. People struggle to come up with some sort of lighthearted story to kind of move the gathering forward. But sometimes, and especially here in the last few years, I've been a part of some really powerful funerals. And the reason they're powerful is because of the clarity of the message of the person's life. The reason they're powerful is because through account and story and memory and sharing after sharing, this unified vision, this unified message is delivered, not based on what the person said, but based on what the person did, based on the way the person lived their life. And you walk out of a place like this with this compelling sense of that was a real clear message that you can't argue with because it wasn't words, it was actions. It was demonstrated value lived out. Right? These people let their lives speak. Right? They let their actions do the talking. We're in a series called Influence, Thought, Word, and Deed, and the point of the series is to talk about some really practical ways for us to engage in the work of restoration, Last week, I talked about the power of words. Words have the ability to hurt and heal. Words have the ability to restore and to destroy. Uh, and, and I think it's important that we acknowledge that because 
Some of us will do some really amazing and ambitious restorative work in our life. Most of us will not do the big amazing things, um, but we can still make a huge difference because our words are such a powerful tool of restoration, right? What I want to ask this morning is kind of a second question to that, which is what's more powerful than words? What's more powerful than words? Or put another way, what speaks more loudly than even words? It's actions, right? It's our actions. Does what we think matter, do you think? Yes, Yes, it does. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Do the words that we speak uh, carry power and influence, do you think? Absolutely, yes. But it's what we do, it's what we do that seems to take everything to another level. Specifically, this idea of influence, our ability to impact others for good, that goes to a whole nother level when we talk about it in terms of our actions. It all matters, in my opinion, thought, word, and deed. It all matters. But there's a very definitive sense in which actions tell the true story, in which actions reveal what is most important in our lives and what's actually true. So this is where thinking about my own funeral becomes actually very helpful and quite clarifying. What story, and maybe it would be for you as well, what stories will people tell about you at your funeral? Um, Some people may know me well enough to know my thoughts, and they may, if given the opportunity at some point, say, well, he thought about these things, he was captivated by these ideas, he liked to read about these ideas and think about these things. Some people might know me well enough to say, well, he said this to me once, or he would talk about these things, which I hope is... I hope somebody says that because I talk so much, right? So I hope, I hope it's making some difference to somebody. But you know what's going to, what's really, people are going to say, uh, at least I hope people will say, well, he did this. He did this, right? This is on record. These are the, this is the way he lived. These are the actions I can point to. Beyond what he said, beyond what she said, these are the things that she would do that would communicate a message to me in a way that was Louder than words. How will you spend the, the, the 40, 50, 70, 80, 90 years of, of your life? What will you do? That's the real question when it comes to influence, I think. There's a, uh, maybe, maybe you've heard this line from a Mary Oliver poem. Tell me, what is your plan? What, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Your thoughts, your beliefs, I think they're so important. Your words that you speak, I think they're so powerful, but your actions, these are the true measurement of your impact. Your actions reveal kind of the, 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 the reality of your influence in the world. So what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? What is it that you're doing with your one wild and precious life? What is it that you have done with your one wild and, and precious life? I want to invite you to, to just take a couple of seconds Um, we don't have time to go full-blown with this, but take a few seconds and write down on your notes something that you want to be remembered for. Maybe a keyword or an area of your life. Maybe you're like, gosh, I'm not sure about that yet. Okay, but you you know something about it, right? You know an area of your life that you hope to be remembered for Um, You know something about what you'd like for somebody to be able to say honestly about you. Write write down a couple of words. I think it would make this teaching more helpful. For what actions do you want to be remembered?
Actions speak more loudly than words. I think that's true, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. But for the Christian, the imperative is clear. Because the Bible ends, because the story of the Bible ends with restoration, our engagement in the story must be active, not passive. You cannot passively engage in a restoration project. If the story didn't end with restoration, say, for instance, the story of the Bible ends with extraction, like you just leave the earth and what you do here doesn't really matter, that just think the right thoughts and say the right words because what you do really, really becomes less important if, if the story actually ends with just kind of like I'll fly away kind of idea. But if, in fact, the story ends with restoration, the restoration of all things, then the way you're living, what you're doing, our actions are incredibly uh, meaningful. If Jesus is right when he says, when he prays the Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Then, then this seems to indicate that our actions are remarkably important and participate in this restoration project that God is involved in. So more than what we must, or we must do, more than, more than we must discuss, okay? Uh, we must show more than we tell, what I'm trying to say. We must give or sacrifice more than we feel. Okay. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you two ways that the Bible focuses on action, and then I want to make three simple observations at the end. All right? So that's where we're headed. You ready to rock? All right. So the first example of how the Bible focuses on action is the central prayer of the Jewish people. It's found in Deuteronomy 6 which is one of the first books of the Bible. It's part of what's called the Torah. And Orthodox Jews still pray this prayer every day. It's called the Shema. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The closest word we have in English to translate the word Shema is hear. The, word, the prayer is called the Shema because that's the first word in the prayer, the word Shema. We translate it hear. Um, and here's my point. In Hebrew, the word Shema actually means much more than just to sort of audibly perceive sound waves. It means more than just to hear. It means to pay attention to. It means to pay attention to in order to respond. All right? So we see this throughout the Old Testament. For instance, David prays to the Lord in Psalm 27, Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. What is it actually that David is asking from God in this prayer? Does he just want God to hear him? It's more than that, right? He, want, he actually wants God to respond to him. He wants God to do something about what he's saying to God. And that's the word he uses, shema my voice when I call Lord. To shema someone is more than just perceiving the sound of their voice. It is to respond to the sound of their voice, right? And in some places in the Old Testament, it gets even more intense. It's even stronger than that. For example, in Exodus 19, verse 5, God speaks to the people through Moses and says this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Another translation has it, if you obey my voice, because they're trying to capture this hearing piece, and keep my covenant. It's interesting, the word that is translated here in David's prayer is the same word translated obey in this passage, and it's the same word that's translated keep. It's shema the whole time, just different tenses, right? So the, the word translated obey and hear and keep is the same. This Hebrew idea of hearing is not just a passive, audible experience that you do with your ear 
What's the symbol of hearing in our culture? The ear, right? In Hebrew, it would not be that. Because the, the, the idea of hearing or shema-ing, if I can totally thrash the word, would be a full-bodied experience. It's a wholehearted, full-bodied response to what is being said. I don't know if this ever happens to any of you parents of kids in the house, like it happens to me. Occasionally, I'll say something to my kids. Then I'll say the exact same thing to my kids again. And they'll say, we heard you. And I'll say, oh, well, you see, I didn't know if you did because you didn't respond to what I said, right? You just kept doing the exact same thing. And this is a problem in my house for one reason. It's because we speak English. That's the problem. And in English, there's one word for hear and there's one word for obey and they're different words. So I've informed my family this morning we're going to begin speaking Hebrew at home because in Hebrew, it's the same word. The word for hear and the word for obey, it's the same word. There'll be no confusion from here on out, right? That's, that's all I got to say. Just start speaking Hebrew. It'll fix all things, right? Every day, this is what they're praying. Shema, O Israel. Listen to the Lord. Listen in order to respond. This is just one example of how action is a central focus in the Bible. There is no just listen to the Lord. There is only listen in order to respond to the Lord. That's, that's it. That's the biblical emphasis of this idea. Hear so that you can act on what you hear. There's this interesting phrase, in fact, that's used by the prophets in the Old Testament, and then Jesus picks it up and he uses it in the New Testament. It is this, they have ears, but they don't hear. So is the problem that they're deaf? Is the, what is the problem? No, the problem is they're not responding to what they're hearing. The problem is they're not doing anything with what they're hearing. They're not acting upon the instruction of God. If they were truly hearing from a biblical perspective, you would, it would be demonstrated in the way they acted. And this is the problem which is being addressed. Real listening from a biblical perspective, maybe write this down, takes effort and requires action. Real listening. I'm listening to the Lord. Okay, from a biblical perspective, listening to the Lord takes effort and requires action. Uh, by the way, I'm still watching these BibleProject.com videos. I think they're really well done, and they have a really good one on the word Shema, five-minute video, BibleProject.com. I recommend it. So that's one example of how the Bible focuses on action. Here's a second example of how the Bible focuses on actions, the teachings of Jesus, the four that, which, are, which are in the four first books of the New Testament. We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very challenging theme in the teachings of Jesus is the importance of action. In fact, when most people refer to Jesus' teachings as difficult, do you know what they actually mean? They mean that the teachings of Jesus require us to do something. That's why they feel so difficult to us. So let's look at just two examples of the teachings of Jesus that I think illustrate how action-focused his teachings really are. The first is in Matthew 11. You're welcome to turn to it. It's on page 682. It'll also be on the screen. It's helpful to see it in context. The context of this passage is this. John, who's Jesus' cousin, his job in the world is to proclaim the coming of Christ. He is to point out that's the one we've been waiting for. That has happened. John has has pointed out Jesus. That's the Lamb of God that we've been waiting for. So now Jesus' ministry has begun. John's ministry doesn't end. He's still a prophet addressing cultural issues. 
At one of the issues he addresses is that Herod the king is married his brother's wife. No, no. Yes, that is it. Herod the king, I got the family tree mixed up. So John the Baptist confronts the king because he's married his brother's wife. Herod doesn't appreciate that, jails John. So Matthew writes it like this. When John, who is in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, that is the Jewish uh, label for Jesus, right, the coming one, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached to the poor. So what kind of answer is Jesus giving to John? To what is Jesus pointing to verify his true identity? It's his actions, right? John's concern is, are you the right guy? Are you who we thought you were? And Jesus' response is, just look at the way I'm living, right? His words, Jesus' words actually matter a lot here. He's quoting Isaiah with this response. He's quoting this prophet that lived 800 years earlier. He actually quotes him like verbatim. This is what Isaiah foresaw the Messiah would do. He would heal leprosy. He would heal the blind. He would raise the dead. He would preach to the poor. So Jesus is using the exact right words, right? Verbatim. But what makes them so powerful is that he's saying these things and he's also doing these things to back it up. He's healing the broken. He's raising the dead. He's, he's preaching to the poor. So Jesus is appealing to his actions. John's in prison. John's hurting. John's confused. Jesus' message to him is basically this. My actions reveal the truth about who I am. My actions reveal the truth about who I am. Are you the right guy? Just look at my actions. They will speak more loudly than my words. That's what Jesus' message is. Here's another example of Jesus' teachings emphasizing action. Very challenging passage. Matthew 25, end of the gospel. We'll start in verse 31. Jesus is in the middle of a big, long teaching about the way the world's going to kind of wrap up. Judgment, this whole idea of the end of the world. And this is what Jesus says. When the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. The king, then the king, Jesus again referring to himself, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You let me in. Uh, I needed clothes. You clothed me. I was sick. You took care of me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. And the righteous will answer. They're confused. They're like, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When, when did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And then Jesus says this like completely powerful statement, this like kind of paradigm shifting statement. He says, 
Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he continues and puts the whole thing in the negative just to make sure we get the point. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you did not give me, or you gave me nothing to eat, is what he says. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick, I was in prison, you did not look after me. And they're like, whoa, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and in prison and not respond. The idea is clearly we would have responded. And he says this, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Whoo, it's tough, right? They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Here's the deal. You have to dance around this passage to come to a conclusion that is anything other than your actions reveal a lot about they are what matters to God. Your actions are what matter to God, right? Your actions, just like Jesus' actions reveal the truth about who he is, your actions reveal the truth about who you are. My actions reveal the truth about who I am. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. So those are just two ways the Bible focuses on the importance of actions. There are tons of others. What are the two ways? The prayer of the Jews and the teachings of Jesus. Pretty central things, pretty core things. So let me finish with three observations about these. First two are about why we don't act very often. And then a final observation about one way that we can act more often. So one reason that we don't often act is because the needs are overwhelming, and we buy into the idea that our effort won't really make a difference in the end anyway. There's even a phrase that is being used in, I don't know, uh, in, in writing about the sort of the cultural dynamic that we're in, which is uh, compassion fatigue or compassion exhaustion. So I would write down the word exhaustion. Why don't we act more often? My perspective, it's, it's exhaustion. What does that mean? It means that every week, there's a new issue. Every week, there's a new crisis. Every week, there's a new problem. Every week, there's a new need, and it's legitimate. We, we're being called to engage. And, and I know this. I've been paying closer attention to this recently because some of you with, uh, with good motivation will say, you need to address this, and you need to address this, And it's funny because every week it's a new thing and and we could just address issues all day long, right? Because there's always issues. You got to get out the vote for this public policy issue. You got to address this total social injustice that is wrong in the church. Absolutely, right? You got to address this. There's this this environmental weather crisis of the week, right? A hurricane, a flood, a fire, a dam's going to break, an earthquake's going to happen, right? Every week something. Then there's the... there's terrorist attacks, there's mass shootings. I mean, an, uh, and they're all, they're all valid needs. They all require action. And the pleas are often given so effectively and the, the money will be used so well, and it's like exhausting. It's exhausting. Um, here's the problem, in my opinion. Uh, doing nothing is not a faithful option for the Christian. It's exhausting. There's so many needs, so many pictures, so many pleas for help. 
But it's, it's not an option for us to do nothing. Not if Jesus meant it when he said, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done for me. So we cannot do nothing. Neither can we always do something, right? We cannot always do something. So this is hard. This is a puzzle. Uh, and, and here's what I observe in my own life. Perhaps it's true in your life. It's often overwhelming exhaustion that causes me to do not something, but nothing at all. It's often exhaustion. I'm just like, I, I just do nothing at all. My friend calls it the snowboarder mentality. The snowboarder mentality, which is there's just a hundred needs in front of you. There's all these valid needs, all these important things to, and you got a little bit of time and a little bit of money. And you're looking at the needs and you're looking at your little bit of resources and you're like, I'm just going to go snowboarding, right? I'm just going to bail out because I'm just overwhelmed by, the, by the, 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 the overwhelming needs that are out there. And what I'm trying to say is that it's simply not a faithful option for the Christian to consistently just say, it's just too much for me, right? A second reason that we don't often act is because, and I think this is really important, we've excused ourselves from seeing action as essential, We've excused ourselves from seeing action as essential. We've convinced ourselves that actions in Christianity are kind of like extra credit. They're good, but they're not required. Hmm. Yeah. There's no rule that says I have to volunteer so many hours. I have to give so much money. I don't want to be legalistic about everything, right? I don't want rules. Don't you put rules on my spirituality, right? That feels way too institutionalized way too structured. Nobody wants anybody to tell them what to do. They have to do it. After all, we say to ourselves, especially those of us who may be a little more sophisticated with the Bible, is we're saved by grace, not by works, right? Listen, if your theology, if your understanding of the importance of the way you live your life is not fueling you towards engagement of need, then I think you need to reevaluate your theology, right? If your theology in this very consumeristic, this very like, it's about me and my fulfillment, live for yourself culture, if it's not causing you to live differently than the rest of culture, I think you need to reevaluate it. If your theology is leading you in any way towards laziness in the face of need, I think you need to reevaluate your theology. You might evaluate whether or not what you believe and what you say is actually making any difference in the real world, Okay. You might evaluate whether or not your lifestyle actually communicates devotion to Jesus as Lord. You might reevaluate that. Right. When I was in high school, I got into A.W. Tozer. He was this really fiery preacher in Chicago in the 1950s, 1960s, and he had some great little books. One of them was called I Talk Back to the Devil, which I really liked. And he had this, uh, this quote from that book, if the devil accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to prove it? What was he getting at? He was getting at, you know, you can believe what you want and say what you want, but show me. Like, it should filter down to actions. It should be demonstrable. Right, now, are we accepted by God because we do all the right things, we keep all the right rules? No, that's not why we're accepted by God. Paul is careful to, to say to those who put a premium on keeping the rules that it is our faith in Christ Right? That makes us acceptable to it is our trust in Christ. It's what Christ does for us on our behalf that enables us to be acceptable 
to God. But Jesus repeatedly emphasizes action, does he not? Right? And he emphasizes action as the clear evidence of a surrendered heart, a s- evidence of the real deal. And Jesus' kid brother puts a fine point on the issue. His name's James with the famous line, faith without works is dead. Right? So there's this massive focus on the importance of action. And, I, and I'm, I'm feeling um, passionate about this because, friends, it is very acceptable in Placer County to live a life of self-fulfillment. It's very acceptable. In fact, it's more than acceptable to live a life of self-fulfillment. People celebrate it. And if you are living a life of self-fulfillment, it is a sign and a symbol to others that you've succeeded. Congratulations. That's amazing. Good for you. Don't let the fact that it's acceptable be your excuse for self-centeredness. It's not an option for the faithful, right? Our actions are not an add-on. Our actions are not bonus extra credit to the stuff of Christianity. That's a false distinction. Our actions tell the true story, okay? Our actions are the real deal. So there's two observations about why we don't often act. We're exhausted. I get it. We excuse ourselves from seeing actions as part of the deal, right? As essential to the faith. Now, a final observation, one way to act more often. One way to act more often. Embrace a little strictness. Embrace a little strictness. I love that phrase. It's from St. Benedict, 6th century Italian monk, who I read a lot and enjoy. He writes, he writes this to those in his community who are wanting to make a real difference in the world, wanting to make an influence in the culture. And he's emphasizing actions. And he urges monks to embrace a little strictness. Why? Because he knows that for them like us, they've got great intentions, but the intentions don't really carry them. If they don't carry through to actions, then they've kind of missed the point. The good intentions are great, but if they don't accomplish anything, then they've missed it. So embrace a little strictness. And this might sound too structured for some of you. It might sound like I'm pulling the heart out of obedience or something like that. And that, that's not at all my, um, my goal. I've gone to structuring um, my time and to budgeting money beyond my tithe in order to make sure that my actions demonstrate devotion to Jesus as king. You might say, whoa, that sounds legalistic. You know what? It's just being intentional. It's just being intentional. I'm intentional about other things that I'm serious about. And, and I can't read the teachings of Jesus and come away thinking that some of this stuff is optional. And so I've gone to a really specific and maybe sort of a structured approach. I'm embracing a little strictness because that's what it's going to take, for me at least, to take my, uh, my, my um, faith in Christ to the place of action. Okay? What kind of strictness is Benedict talking about? You know, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, and he puts it like this, to help you hurt others less and help others more. I love that. I think it's so practical. You identify the part of your life, the time in your life, the conditions in your life where you are a weapon. You're hurting people. You're offending people. And you you recognize that as reality, and you embrace a little strictness to keep yourself from hurting the people that you love. Okay? Or you identify the people in your life that you could actually help. You could actually 
fuel their lives forward and you embrace a little strictness to focus some time there, to focus some resources there. Whatever it takes for you to hurt people less and help people more, that's what you need to pursue. It's going to look different for everybody. Embrace a little strictness. Build a good rule or structure or pattern or habit around your life to enable you to make an actual uh, impact, right? So um, I'll end with this story. When I was, uh, and this is just my story, and I hope, it, I hope it's helpful. When I was 40, when I turned 40, I went away for a whole day. Uh, I was devastated, right? Uh, I, I spent some time alone. <clears throat> I wrote, I read old journals. I identified the parts in my life that I felt like were just really key. And I came home with this plan, with this three statements that I, here's my plan, three statements that I wanted to be able to honestly say about myself when I turned 50. All my life, I'd heard about, he's 40 now. He's in his 40s. It was like, that's when you grew up. You can sort of be a kid in your 20s. I was a youth pastor in my 30s, so I acted like a kid. But then when you hit 40, it's like, it's, it's game time, right? It felt in a sense to me, and it's different for everybody potentially. But man, I felt like, I don't want to squander this decade. I want to be really intentional with this. I get, I get one shot at 40s. So I, I wrote these three things I want to be able to honestly say about myself when I turn 50. I call it my at 50 plan. And uh, I'm a words guy. I love words. I'm motivated by words, compelled by words. And so my plan was all words. But in order to be able to say these three things honestly about myself in the future, I need to do these specific things consistently right now. You follow? And so what came from that at 50 plan was things I got to do every year, things I got to do every quarter, things I got to do every month, every week, every day in order to be able to honestly say this is true about me. For instance, one of them, and it's just me, is I want to be able to say I'm leading a healthy family. And I want to be able to define that as I, as I, as I understand health. Well, in order for that to be true, I got to do some actions now. A couple weeks ago, I turned 45, so I'm at halftime, right? I'm like halfway there. And I sat down with Carmen. I said, do we want to reevaluate any of this? You know, is this still kind of what, what seems to be most important from your perspective on my life is what I'm kind of thinking. Words still matter, absolutely, but it's the actions. More than ever in my life, friends, it's the actions that seem to be what really is important, right? So, so it's... For, you know, for me, I'm, I'm 45, you're at a different age. So it either seems really old to you or really young. I understand that. So maybe for you, it's something you're thinking about it in terms of this week, or maybe you're thinking about it in terms of retirement, or maybe you're thinking about it in terms of this school year or whatever. Don't get too focused on the details of, of my situation. But I'm just trying to tell you that I'm, I'm kind of at halftime in a season uh, uh, with which I've been more intentional than any season in my whole life. And what I'm noticing is that the areas in which I've experienced the most growth, this is not rocket science, are the areas in which I have most consistently acted, done things that support this, this kind of growth that I aspire to. It's halftime. In what areas have I made the most positive influence on other people? Clearly in the areas where my words are backed up with my actions. That's where I've made the most of an impact. And what areas in my life need the most attention? I'm telling you, it is glaring off the page. It's those areas where I've done nothing. I've done nothing. I mean, I have some goals and some things that I really want to be able to say about myself. I haven't made any progress in five years. I haven't done anything, 
right? So those words start to feel hollow. Those words cease to carry a lot of weight. Carmen, I really want to be able to say this. Okay, great. How badly, right? Like, is there action to support this? So what I'm trying to say this morning, friends, is this. Words matter. Absolutely, words matter. But when we're working for restoration, there is something that speaks even more loudly than words, and it's our actions, right? It's our actions. Push back against guilt, push back against uh, disappointment, push back against this idea that it's too late, it's not. Um, Instead, embrace the significance of every single thing you do and offer it to the Lord and resolve to do something very countercultural even for the church, which is to take your Christianity out of your head and out of your mouth and live it out, right? Live it out. If you can't say any other words for the rest of your life, you can still preach the gospel, right? You can still demonstrate the truth in the way you live. Lord, have mercy. Let's pray together. What a gift you've given us, Lord. What a gift you've given us in life, in time, in relationships, in resources, in contacts, in community. We just simply pray that our faith would be proclaimed and our proclamation would be backed up with action. That our lives would communicate the good news of the gospel. That we would be free to run in the path of your law having embraced some strictness, a sense of pattern and ritual for our lives, we would be free and effective. May we join with you as you restore all things. Uh, We pray for your help and grace, and we depend on it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.